Hello, folks. How are you doing? I did not realize that was going to boot up so quickly after that, but that's okay. That's all right. Um, I've got my music sound queued in now, so it should be available for us at the start of the end of the chapters. Um, gang, I don't know if y'all have noticed, but uh, the new link. New link dropped, baby! The new link has dropped. Uh, new link is available over in Discord in the playlists channel. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's going to be a, a good link to go and find the audio for these streams. Because now I am back, at least on uh, the flying sidecar days, I'm back to editing every week. Uh, it's been a few months uh, just trying to get, good grief, just trying to get caught up. Uh, it feels really good to be back up to date on that. And so now you should be able to find those every single week. Um, uh, I imagine because I'm doing my editing on... Uh, Mondays that they should be available starting on about Tuesdays. Um, Tuesday morning at about 9 a.m. Pacific time. That is when I plan to have things out. This week we had a bit of an issue. There's always some kind of issue, right? There's always some goofy thing that's going to make it wild. But that's the that's the aim is Tuesdays. Uh, Tuesday mornings are when you are going to be able to find these episodes. Uh, and that is the Tuesday following. Uh, the episode. So, of course, this one will be up next Tuesday morning, assuming everything goes well. Which it never does, but hey, what are you going to do? Uh, Dahlia, thank you once again so much for the resub. Sander from today, uh, with 19 months. 19 months. Year and a half? That's a solid number right there. Uh, Sander says, I'm a bit late with the sub message, but the streak is still going. It absolutely is. Streak don't stop, baby. Uh, Luis has raided in with some viewers. And Luis, thank you a ton. I appreciate that an awful lot. Um, Spider Author says, it's been a hot minute since I could join live. Well, I'm glad to have you here, Spider Author. It has been a little while, hasn't it? Um, hello to Spider Author, Vance's Lives, Courtney, Plavia, Missy, Muffin Man, Gems, Tanisha, Sander, Dahlia. Uh, Dahlia and I were talking earlier um because I did start, like, weirdly early today. I'm not even sure why. Um, Dolly and I were chatting a little bit. I think my energy is going to be better starting after this week. We shall see. Or at least I'll be able to direct it more effectively. No, better energy and better directed. So we'll see. Um, the, uh, the, the, the appointment that I had on Tuesday... Uh, with my psychiatrist, it went well. Uh, I'm going to be going back on uh, one of my old medications from uh, a few years ago that helped me out quite a bit. And so um, I should be able to go get that tonight. Uh, so I definitely, as I told Dahlia, I definitely waited longer than I should have to go see my psychiatrist. Um, we're still going to see kind of, uh, you know, what's what it's like now compared to last time. Uh, I'm anticipating it may be a little bit different. I don't think y'all see much of that because really it's it's kind of impossible for me to, you know, show it while it's happening. It's, it's certainly like when I get hit by something, it's definitely not the sort of thing that says, all right, time to boot up a camera um, or, a, or a live stream or something. But yeah, I think uh, I'm going to be going back on um, uh, one of my medications that worked pretty well last time. Um, and, you know, I think, like I said, that that energy should help me out. Um it was a little tough. One of the one of the things that I did say to my psychiatrist was like, you know, Sidecar Stories does well. It's certainly like it, we've had we've taken some hits in the past few months, but you know, Sidecar Stories it is it is doing well, and uh, it's one of the things that I'm very very proud of. Uh, and yet, I 
you know, fine. I, I, I've had lots of, lots of moments in the past few months. Um, if I'm being f- honest with myself, uh, I would say more months than not over the past like year and a half or two years um, where, you know, I, I, I was either unable to kind of muster the the enthusiasm to, to come back to this, even though, like I said, it's something that I'm so proud of. It's just, you know, for those of you who know, you know, for those of you who don't, it's going to take me a lot longer than I have right now to explain it. Um, uh, either that or just, you know, the times when the, the joys that I should have been able to find from uh, the successes that I've had here and the, and the, the, the fantastic things that have happened um, in my life as a result of this channel. Uh, just, you know, really unable to absorb that. I, I can recognize it in a sort of clinical sense, but not really able to absorb it as a joyful thing happening in my life. So I am, I, I think it's a good move. Um, we'll see how the next uh, few months treat me. Um, uh, last time the, and I'm, I'm expecting this as a possibility. There were a few months where as my levels sort of evened out, it was a rockier ride than it even had been prior to that, but there was a lot of things going on too so i don't know the next few weeks are going to be interesting um uh spider author says thank you for being open about your mental health we didn't know it's okay to not be okay and get help absolutely um you know i i I talk with a lot of people who do have mental health struggles and the one big thing that um i would urge everyone i know there are some folks uh, and, and accessibility to mental health is um, I mean, it's a, it's kind of a joke in this country, uh, sometimes, but, uh, I, I do want to be clear that there's, a, there's a specific hitch that I see, um, where people, even if they understand, if they, even if they call it by the name mental health, they will sometimes be unwilling to process like, yeah, I might need medication for this. Um, or I might need, uh, some sort of therapy for this. When you, when you break your leg, you get physical therapy, or, or when you like, like have some sort of serious injury, you get physical therapy. Um, if you are diabetic, you take insulin. Uh, if you've got Crohn's disease, you're going to take medication because there's something in your body that's not working. And the brain is in the body. It is subject to chemical whims. And uh, as such, it needs to be treated like an organ sometimes, uh, which is to say, yeah, if it's busted up, you can medicate it. You can, you can do therapy on it. <laughs> there are things that you can do. Um, and right now I'm, I'm glad I'm sort of in a position. It it always helps to feel like I'm making progress. I have not started the medication I'm going to be on, uh, yet, but it always like, it's always very encouraging to me to feel like, okay, I've taken a step in the right direction. Should have taken it earlier, but I have done it now. And so, yeah, let's see what these next few weeks are like. Could be weird. Could be great. We'll see. We shall see everyone. I hope you were excited to join me here tonight. I'm certainly excited to join you tonight. Um, that's how it feels for me. I don't know if I've properly communicated that, but it definitely feels like y'all are coming here, but I'm also sort of coming to you. It, it feels like we're sort of meeting up in, in uh, I don't know, depending on how you like to uh, aestheticize the, your, <laughs> your different um, meeting places. I always imagine it a little bit like um, kind of a half magical tavern. Uh, 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 cafe, excuse me, um, where, you know, you might see a cat walking on the ceiling or something, um, and all of us are sat here in this nice, like, warm place with a fire going someplace, drinking something hot and a little sweet. <laughs> I am curious, what what do y'all see when you're here? What's, what's the picture or the vibe for y'all? Um, yeah, I think it's, uh, I, I don't know. It's 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 fun to join you all here. Um, 
and I'm glad to see I'm seeing some folks uh, talking in chat about uh, the part that I play in your mental health. I am really happy to be that. I know there's this whole like, um, I'll be honest, I have not read the definition, so I don't know how it's being defined right now, but there's this idea of like a parasocial relationship. It sounds like there's a lot of negative connotation around the word. Like I said, have not read a definition. I don't know a definition, but I do know like while like you and I, like we we do have a relationship. There is a relationship to be had there. It's not the same one that you would have with a personal friend, but like I, you know, there, this this is a, a type of a relationship and uh, it's a new one. I think there's still a lot of growing pains to be had with this sort of relationship in the world that people have. But no, I'm, I am, I am uh, honored to be part of some people's mental health. Uh, I hope that I can be a good steward of that. Um, I know I'm not always, but I am also working on being better on my end. And I don't pretend to be an authority. Um, I, <laughs> I want to, I want to make sure to, to express that at least once during this conversation. I don't, I'm not an authority on, uh, on the, you know, whatever relationship we might have. I'm not an authority on, uh, mental health. Certainly I do have a little bit of experience, but that's about it. That's about it. Gang, are you ready? My punk ruffians, are you ready for episode two? I can't say part two because this book is actually divided up into parts now. Let's talk a little bit of review, huh? Um, chapters one, two, and three of the Hunger Games of our brand new adventure. It's time to do another adventure. Um, this one, more serious than our last one, certainly. Um, whereas the last one, it would approach serious moments and kind of shy away. Suzanne Collins, our author for this series, uh, does not seem afraid to really tackle some tough subjects. And we're going to be talking about those more and more. Um, chapters 1, 2, and 3, we meet Katniss Everdeen. We are introduced to what the big conflict is going to be in this series, which is, of course, the titular Hunger Games. Um, the Hunger Games themselves are, of course, where these different districts, as a punishment for a, a long past rebellion against the capital... All these different districts, um, 12 currently in total, um, they have to send two tributes, a boy and a girl, and they are going to fight to the death, all of them. Katniss's little sister, Prim, is selected, and of course Katniss takes her place. Uh, in addition, the other uh, tribute selected from this district is not... The likely story, which would have been Gail, Katniss's best friend and hunting partner. No, it's Peta, Peta Malark. And uh, Peta is the baker's son, someone who probably didn't have a lot of entries in the bowl, and yet up he goes. Um, he holds kind of a special place in Katniss's heart because he did her a real kindness when her family was starving just after her father had died. Um, but the two of them are introduced to this wild world and we are about to really dive in with both feet. Um, Katniss and Peta are both on the tribute train heading toward the capital. It's going to take just about a day. We've still got more to do here. Um, there's more to sort of discuss on the train here, but we're about to be in the capital, and we're going to see what it looks like when these two tributes, these two just country kids from a little mining town are thrown into high society and all of the various, like, um, uh, uh, luxuries that that affords and also all of the just sort of universally accepted darkness uh, of the games. That's where we're at. 
Um, we meet Effie Trinket, who is sort of uh, like a spokesperson for this district um, and the, the the tributes that come from it. Uh, we meet Haymitch Abernathy, who is a former, uh, the only living uh, former tribute to have won the Hunger Games from District 12. So District 12 not had a lot of victorious tributes. Haymitch is the only one still alive, and there was only one other one in the 74-year history of this entire project. Um, and uh, although he's supposed to kind of train them and guide them through the process, he is perpetually drunk and entirely unhelpful. As a matter of fact, he has just thrown up on the floor and uh, I think fallen into it. That's about where we're at. Um Let's see. Uh, yeah, Sander, you know what? Let's talk about it now, huh? Uh, and you're going to have to remind me, who is it that is going to sing happy birthday to Sander? Because it's Sander's birthday, or at least it was recently. Uh, like for Peeves to do it? Gotcha. And no wet raspberry. <laughs> well, that's the, that's the question. You get, to, you get to make a request from Sam, but do you get to make demands of Peeves? That's the question. I won't do it. I won't do it. Hey, at 44, welcome. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. Uh, welcome to the sidecar. Hop on in, get cozy, get something hot to drink. Um, we are about to read chapters three, four, and nope, chapters four, five, and six of The Hunger Games Part One. You're at a great time here. And if y'all want to find out more about where you can find previous episodes of this, head to the Discord. That's the best spot to uh, to find all of our midweek discussion, to get all of your notifications, etc. Use the, well, it's not going to come up now. I think my links might be broken. Um, let's see. Let me just throw this in here. Uh, Linktree slash sidecar stories. L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash sidecar stories. Um, you can head to that link tree. You'll be able to find the Discord. That's the most important one. And that has a playlists channel where you're going to be able to find the links to all of our previous episodes of Harry Potter, the entire series, Percy Jackson and the Olympians, the entire series, and now The Hunger Games. Um, they are all up there. We are all caught up on that front. And then, of course, soon I will have the uh, the classic lit in there as well. And uh, may, it may excite some of you to know that I have got about half of the episodes of... Um, chat plays Dungeon World uploaded to YouTube now. Um, I've only uh, made the initial ones uh, public so far because I need to add descriptions and such to the rest of them. But those should all be up soon. I'm very excited. Okay. All right. Let's see. Let's see. Sander, happy birthday to you. Hmm. Happy birthday to you! Happy birthday to you! Happy birthday, dear Santa! Happy birthday to, to, to you! <laughs> Is he gonna do it? No, he won't. He won't. No wet raspberry as ordered. It's the one time Peeves is going to listen, but I think it's just because McGonagall, we heard her footsteps and she was on the way down. Xander, happy birthday. I hope you have a great one. Uh, excuse me. I hope you had a great one, but I hope you have a great year. And with that, folks, thank you all very much for joining me. Um, let's read, shall we? Yeah, Kroplavia, uh, of course. I think um, your, your nightmares, if I can be. If I can be your nightmare shepherd, let me be. <laughs> Everyone, 
Chapter 4. For a few moments, Peta and I take in the scene of our mentor trying to rise out of the slippery, vile stuff from his stomach. The reek of vomit and raw spirits almost brings my dinner up. We exchange a glance. Obviously, Hey Mitch isn't much, but Effie Trinket is right about one thing. Once we're in the arena, he's all we've got. As if by some unspoken agreement, Peta and I each take one of Haymitch's arms and help him to his feet. A trout, Hamish asks. It smells bad. He wipes his hand on his nose, smearing his face with vomit. Let's get you back up to your room, says Peter. Clean you up a bit. We half lead, half carry Hamish back to his compartment. Since we can't exactly set him down on the embroidered bedspread, we haul him to the bathtub and turn the shower on him. He hardly notices. It's okay, Peter says to me. I'll take it from here. I can't help feeling a little grateful since the last thing I want to do is strip down Haymitch, wash the vomit out of his chest hair, and tuck him into bed. Possibly, Peter is trying to make a good impression on him, to be his favorite once the games begin. But... Judging by the state he's in, Haymitch will have no memory of this tomorrow at all. All right, I say. I can send one of the capital people to help you. There's any number on the train. Cooking for us, waiting on us, guarding us, taking care of us is their job. Nope, I don't want them, says Peter. I nod and head to my own room. I understand how Peter feels. I can't stand the sight of the capital people myself, but making them deal with Haymitch might be a small form of revenge. So I'm pondering and reasoning why he insists on taking care of Haymitch, and all of a sudden I think it's because he's being kind. Just as he was kind to give me the bread. The idea pulls me up short. A kind Peter Malark is far more dangerous to me than an unkind one. Kind people have a way of working their way inside me and rooting there, and I can't let Peter do this. Not where we're going. So I decide, from this moment on, to have as little as possible to do with the baker's son. When I got back to my room, the train is pausing at a platform to refuel. I quickly open the window, toss the cookies Peter's father gave me out of the train, and slam the glass shut. No more. No more of either of them. Unfortunately, the packet of cookies hits the ground and bursts open in a patch of dandelions by the track. I only see the image for a moment, because the train is off again, but that's enough. Enough to remind me of that other dandelion in the schoolyard years ago. I had just turned away from Peter Malark's bruised face when I saw the dandelion, and I knew hope wasn't lost. 
I plucked it carefully and hurried home. I grabbed a bucket and Prim's hand and headed to the meadow. And yes, it was dotted with gold-headed weeds. After we'd harvested those, we scrounged along inside the fence for probably a mile until we'd filled the bucket with dandelion greens, stems, flowers. That night, we gorged ourselves on dandelion salad and the rest of the bakery bread. What else? Prim asked me. What other food can we find? All kinds of things, I promised her. I'll just have to remember them. My mother had a book she'd brought with her from the apothecary shop. The pages were made of old parchment and covered in ink drawings of plants. Neat handwritten blocks told their names, where to gather them, when they came into bloom, their medical uses. But my father added other entries to the book. Plants for eating, not healing. Dandelions, pokeweed, wild onions, pines. Prim and I spent the rest of the night poring over those pages. The next day we were off to school. For a while I hung around the edges of the meadow, but finally I worked up the courage to go under the fence. It was the first time I'd been there alone, without my father's weapons to protect me. But I retrieved the small bow and arrows he'd made from me from a hollow tree. I probably didn't go more than twenty yards into the woods that day. Most of the time I perched up in the branches of an old oak, hoping for game to come by. After several hours I had the good luck to kill a rabbit. I'd shot a few rabbits before with my father's guidance, but this one? I'd done it on my own. We hadn't eaten meat in months. The sight of the rabbit seemed to stir something in my mother. She roused herself skinned the carcass and made a stew with the meat and some more greens Prim had gathered. Then she acted confused and went back to bed, but when the stew was done, we made her eat a bowl. The woods became our savior, and each day I went a bit further into its arms. It was slow going at first, but I was determined to feed us. I stole eggs from nests, caught fish in nets, sometimes managed to shoot a squirrel or rabbit for stew, and gathered the various plants that sprung up beneath my feet. Plants are tricky. Many are edible, but one false mouthful, and you're dead. I checked and double-checked the plants I harvested with my father's pictures. I kept us alive. Any sign of danger, a distant howl, the inexplicable break of a branch sent me flying back to the fence at first. Then I began to risk climbing trees to escape the wild dogs that quickly got bored and moved on. Bears and cats lived deeper in, perhaps disliking the sooty reek of our district. On May 8th, I went to the Justice Building, signed up for my tesserae, and pulled home my first batch of grain and oil in Prim's toy wagon. On the 8th of every month, I was entitled to do the same. I couldn't stop hunting and gathering, of course. The grain was not enough to live on, and there were other things to buy, soap and milk and thread. What we didn't absolutely have to eat, I began to trade at the hob. It was frightening to enter that place without my father at my side, but people had respected him, and they accepted me. Game was game, after all, no matter who had shot it. I also sold at the back doors of the wealthier clients in town, trying to remember what my father had told me and learning a few new tricks as well. The butcher would buy my rabbits, but not squirrels. The baker enjoyed squirrel, but would only trade for one if his wife wasn't around. The head peacekeeper loved wild turkey, 
the mayor had a passion for strawberries. In late summer, I was washing up in a pond when I noticed the plants growing around me. Tall, with leaves like arrowheads, blossoms with three white petals. I knelt down in the water, my fingers digging into the soft mud, and I pulled up handfuls of the roots. Small, bluish tubers that didn't look like much, but boiled or baked were as good as any potato. Katniss, I said aloud, that's the plant I was named for. And I heard my father's voice joking, As long as you can find yourself, you'll never starve. I spent hours stirring up the pond bed with my toes and a stick, gathering the tubers that floated on top. That night, we feasted on fish and catnus roots until we were all, for the first time in months, full. Slowly, my mother returned to us. She began to clean and cook and preserve some of the food I'd brought for winter. People traded us or paid money for her medical remedies. One day, I heard her singing. Prim was thrilled to have her back, but I kept watching, waiting for her to disappear on us again. I didn't trust her. And some small, gnarled place inside me hated her for her weakness, for her neglect, for the months she had put us through. Prim forgave her, but I had taken a step back from my mother. I put up a wall to protect myself from needing her, and nothing was ever going to be the same between us again. Now I was going to die without ever having set that right. I thought of how I had yelled at her today in the Justice Building. I told her I loved her too, though, so maybe it would all balance out. For a while I stand staring out the train window, wishing it would open again, but unsure of what would happen at such a high speed. In the distance, I see the lights of another district. Seven? Ten? I don't know. I think about people in their houses settling in for bed. I imagine my home with its shutters drawn tight. What are they doing now? My mother and Prim? Were they able to eat supper? The fish stew and the strawberries? Or did it lay untouched on their plates? Did they watch the recap of the day's events on the battered old TV that sits on the table against the wall? Surely there were more tears. Is my mother holding up? Being strong for Prim? Or has she already started to slip away, leaving the weight of the world on my sister's fragile shoulders? Prim will undoubtedly sleep with my mother tonight. The thought of that scruffy old buttercup posting himself on the bed to watch over Prim, it comforts me. If she cries, he will nose his way under her arms and curl up there until she calms down and falls asleep. I'm so glad I didn't drown him. <laughs> Imagining my home makes me ache with loneliness. This day has been endless. Could Gail and I have been eating blackberries only this morning? It seemed like a lifetime ago like a long dream that deteriorated into a nightmare. Maybe if I go to sleep, I'll wake up back in District 12, where I belong.
Probably the drawers hold any number of nightgowns, but I just strip off my shirt and pants and climb into bed in my underwear. The sheets are made of soft, silky fabric. A thick, fluffy comforter gives immediate warmth. If I'm going to cry, now's the time to do it. By morning, I'll be able to wash the damage done by the tears to my face. But no tears come. I'm too tired or too numb to cry. The only thing I feel is a desire to be somewhere else. So I let the train rock me into oblivion. Gray light is leaking through the curtains when the rapping rouses me. I hear Effie Trinket's voice calling me to rise. Up, up, up! It's going to be a big, big, big day! I try to imagine for a moment what it must be like inside that woman's head. What thoughts fill her waking hours? What dreams come to her at night? I have no idea. I put the green outfit back on since it's not really dirty, just slightly crumpled from spending the night on the floor. My fingers trace the circle around the little gold mockingjay. And I think of the woods, and of my father, and of my mother, and Prim waking up having to get on with things. I slept in the elaborate braided hair my mother did for me, for the reaping, and it doesn't look too bad, so I just leave it up. It doesn't matter. We can't be far from the capital now. And once we reach the city, my stylist will dictate my look for the opening ceremonies tonight anyway. I just hope I get one who doesn't think nudity is the last word in fashion. As I enter the dining car, Effie Trinket brushes by me with a cup of black coffee. She's muttering obscenities under her breath. Hamish, his face puffy and red from the previous night's indulgences, is chuckling. Peta holds a roll and looks somewhat embarrassed. Hey, sit down! Sit down! Says Hamish, waving me over. The moment I slide into my chair, I'm served an enormous platter of food. Eggs, ham, piles of fried potatoes. A tureen of fruit sits in ice to keep it chilled. The basket of rolls they set before me would keep my family going for a week. There's an elegant glass of orange juice. At least I think it's orange juice. I've only ever tasted an orange once. At New Year's Eve, when my father bought one as a special treat. A cup of coffee. My mother adores coffee, which we could almost never afford, but it only tastes bitter and thin to me. A rich, brown cup of something I've never seen. They call it hot chocolate, says Peter. It's good. I take a sip of the hot, sweet, creamy liquid and a shudder runs through me. Even though the rest of the meal beckons, I ignore it until I've drained my cup. Then I stuff down every mouthful I can hold, which is a substantial amount being careful not to overdo it on the richest stuff. One time, my mother told me I always eat like I'll never see food again. I said, I won't unless I bring it home. That shut her up. When my stomach feels like it's about to split open, I lean back and take in my breakfast companions. Peter is still eating, breaking off bits of roll and dipping them in hot chocolate. Hamish hasn't paid much attention to his platter, but he's knocking back a glass of red juice that he keeps thinning with a clear liquid from a bottle. Judging by the fumes, it's some kind of spirit. I don't know Hamish, but I've seen him often enough in the hob, tossing handfuls of money on the counter of the woman who sells white liquor. 
It'll be incoherent by the time we reach the capital. I realize I detest Haymitch. No wonder the District 12 tributes never stand a chance. It isn't just that we've been underfed and lacked training. Some of our tributes have still been strong enough to make a go of it. But we rarely get sponsors, and he's a big part of the reason why. The rich people who back tributes, either because they're betting on them or simply for the bragging rights of picking a winner, expect someone classier than Haymitch to deal with. So, you're supposed to give us advice, I say to Hamish. <laughs> Here's some advice. Stay alive! <laughs> Says Hamish, and then bursts out laughing. I exchange a look with Peter before I remember I'm having nothing more to do with him. I'm surprised to see the hardness in his eyes. He generally seems so mild. That's very funny, says Peter. Suddenly he lashes out at the glass in Hamish's hand. It shatters on the floor, sending the blood-red liquid running across the back of the train. Just not to us. Hamish considers this for a moment, and then punches Peter in the jaw, knocking him from the chair. When he turns back to reach for the spirits, I drive my knife into the table between his hands and the bottle, barely missing his fingers. I brace myself to deflect his hit, but it doesn't come. Instead, he sits back and squints at us. <laughs> well, what's this? says Hamish. Uh, did I actually get a pair of fighters this year? Peter raises from the floor and scoops up a handful of ice from under the fruit terrain. He starts to raise it to the red mark on his jaw. No, no, says Hamish, stopping him. Let the bruise show. The audience will think they've mixed it up with another tribute before you've made it to the arena. That's against the rules, says Peter. <laughs> Only if they catch you. That bruise will say that you fought and you weren't caught. Even better, says Hamish. He turns to me. Can you hit anything with that knife besides a table? The bow and arrow is my weapon, but I've spent a fair amount of time throwing knives as well. Sometimes, if I've wounded an animal with an arrow, it's better to get a knife into it, too, before I approach it. I realize that if I want Haymitch's attention, this is my moment to make my impression. I yank the knife out of the table, get a grip on the blade, and then throw it across the room into the wall. I was actually just hoping to get a good solid stick, but it lodges in the seam between two panels making me look a lot better than I am. Stand over here. Both of you, says Hamish, nodding to the middle of the room. We obey, and he circles us, prodding us like animals at times, checking our muscles, examining our faces. <sighs> well, you're not entirely hopeless. You seem fit. And once the stylist gets a hold of you, you're going to be attractive enough. Peter and I don't question this. The Hunger Games aren't a beauty contest, but the best-looking tributes always seem to pull more sponsors. All right. I'll make a deal with you. 
you don't interfere with my drinking, and I'll stay sober enough to help you, says Hamish. But you have to do exactly what I say. It's not much of a deal, but still a giant step forward from ten minutes ago when we had no guide at all. Fine, says Peter. All right, so help us, I say. When we get to the arena, what's the best strategy for the cornucopia for the sum? One thing at a time. In a few minutes, we'll be pulling into the station. You'll be putting the hands of your stylist. You're not going to like what they do to you. But no matter what it is, you don't resist, says Hamish. But, I begin, no buts, you don't resist, says Hamish. Takes the bottle of spirits from the table and leaves the car. As the door swings shut behind him, the car goes dark. There are still a few lights on inside, but outside it's as if night has fallen again. I realize we must be in the tunnel that leads up through the mountains into the capital. The mountains form a natural barrier between the capital and the eastern districts. It's almost impossible to enter from the east except through the tunnels. This geographical advantage was a major factor in the districts losing the war that led to my being a tribute today. Since the rebels had to scale the mountains, they were easy targets for the capital's air forces. Peter Malark and I stand in silence as the train speeds along. The tunnel goes on and on, and I think of the tons of rock separating me from the sky, and my chest tightens. I hate being encased in stone this way. It reminds me of the mines and my father, trapped, unable to reach sunlight, buried forever in the darkness. The train finally begins to slow, and suddenly bright light floods into the compartment. We can't help it. Both Peter and I run to the window and see what we've only seen on television. The ruling city of Pan Am. The cameras haven't lied about its grandeur. If anything, they've not quite captured the magnificence of the gleaming buildings and a rainbow of hues that tower into the air, the shiny cars that roll down the wide paved streets, the oddly dressed people with bizarre hair and painted faces who have never missed a meal. All the colors seem artificial. The pinks too deep, the greens too bright, the yellows painful to the eyes, like the flat round discs of hard candy we could never afford to buy in the tiny sweet shop District 12. The people begin to point at us eagerly as they recognize a tribute train rolling into the city. I step away from the window, sickened by their excitement, knowing they can't wait to watch us die. But Peter holds his ground, actually waving and smiling at the gawking crowd. He only stops when the train pulls into the station, blocking us from their view. He sees me staring at him and shrugs. Who knows, he said. One of them might be rich. I have misjudged him. I think of his actions since the reaping began, the friendly squeeze of my hand, his father showing up with the cookies and promising to feed Prim. Did Peter put him up to that? His tears at the station volunteering to wash Hamish, but then challenging him this morning when apparently the nice guy approach had failed, and now the waving at the window, already trying to win the crowd. 
All of the pieces are still fitting together, but I sense he's got a plan forming. He hasn't accepted his death. He's already fighting hard to stay alive. Which also means that kind Peter Malark, the boy who gave me the bread, is fighting hard to kill me. Well now, everyone, what do we think of this? Is Peter indeed ready to kill Katniss? What's going on in Peter's head at this moment? I'm going to leave you all with a bit of a chatter break. I couldn't remember the name for whatever reason. I just had it chucked into the back of the drawer somewhere. Had to reach around and find it. A bit of a chatter break question, but I'm not going to take my break just yet. I'm going to leave you all with a chatter break question, and then we're going to go into our review and head into our next chapter. Um... For those of you who have not been kept abreast of this, uh, unless something goes wonky, I intend to read exactly three chapters every single stream throughout this entire book. Uh, it's interesting that it worked that way. Um, uh, the author has been very, very intentional about keeping chapter breaks, uh, chapter lengths very similar. Um, and uh, certainly each part is quite similar. There's only a variation of about 2,000 words roughly between our different streams, and so, yeah, it, it all works out really nicely. This book, Suzanne Collins, has been organized very nicely uh, for uh, for these streams and for the discussion that we're going to have, and I want to I bring up two major things. First of all, a Chatterbreak question, right? Chatterbreak question. Uh, Van Saves Lives is enjoying the fancy transitions. I'm glad that you are. Um, <laughs> glad you're enjoying it. Uh, Gertie, Jade, Sander, MMP, UU, Big Mama, Empress K, Fluky, Moose, Zarkabard, and Lord Crow all over in Discord right now. Hello. Um, and yeah, not a bad little roster here on Twitch either. Folks, thank you so much for joining me. Um, I hope if you are new around here, you will give us a follow, and uh, you're coming in at a perfect time because we are only one uh, full episode, and I guess now a third, into the first book of our new adventure here. Uh, if you want to find my uh, read-throughs on all the discussion that we did for the entire Harry Potter series, for the entire Percy Jackson and the Olympian series, you can hit, use the links command, uh, link tree slash sidecar stories that will take you over to the Discord. You can find the playlists over there. You can find all of our discussions over there. Um, that's going to be fun. Chatter break question. What is happening in Peter's mind right now? We get a lot of insight into what Katniss is thinking, right? We, we've talked about um, those different senses of perspective. We have talked about uh, first person. We've talked about uh, first person, uh, uh, excuse me, third person omniscient, uh, third person semi-omniscient. We've talked about the different tenses. This one's kind of interesting because this book is in present tense. Um, we started with Harry Potter, which is in third person, semi-omniscient, uh, uh, past tense, right? It's describing things as if they happen in the past. This one doesn't say, I gritted my teeth, as Venia, etc. It says, I grit my teeth. Um, it says, uh, it, it doesn't say, Peter Malark was fighting hard to kill me. It says, Peter Malark is fighting hard to kill me. Now, what does this do? What, what good is this to us and what effect does it have? Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> um, the one fun thing about this is that we now know we are being told this story as it's happening, not in past tense, which means 
we don't know just by virtue of the tense that the person telling us the story necessarily survived to tell this story sometime in the future, right? We're not getting this from an older Katniss, you know, giving us her, her memoirs or something. This is happening in the moment. So we don't know how all of this ends. I want to bring up one final thing before we move on. Um, and that is... Hamish says something here that I think illustrates a really important point um, that a lot of folks get wrong. I've seen it get wrong. I've seen it gotten wrong in, in literature, in uh, tabletop campaigns, etc. It's a really hard thing to absorb as a character. Um, but Hamish says, don't resist. Talking about all the sort of beautification that is going to be happening of these tributes uh, as we move forward here. I want to bring a, bring some attention to that. This is part of something that's much larger, um, and it, it is a sense of acceptance of the status quo, right? Um, one thing that I think lots of series get wrong is when they're trying to tell stories about fighting against some overwhelming but not omnip, uh, uh, omnipotent, good grief, can't pronounce it, non-omnipotent but very, very powerful force. Uh, you know, a lot of these dystopian kind of things get into it. There is a, a sense of never accepting the status quo, right? And I think that does these stories a disservice. I think there is something important about the uh, recognizing the psychological toll that a, a, a you know, a, a tyrant like this, like the Capitol, would have, right? We want to be able to say like, oh yeah, if I were in this situation immediately, I would you know, I'm I'm going to fight. I'm I'm up to bat. I'm I'm ready to go. But it would be, I think, it would be a joke to say that that would be easy. That that would be a natural instinct. There's a reason why these sort of things exist, and that's because there are so many other pressures on individuals. Because there is uh, power being wielded. Um, I just wanted to bring attention to this idea that it's something that this series does well. There is a strong sense that people who exist in this, they have accepted a certain state of affairs. They've accepted a certain balance of power. They've accepted their sort of place in the hierarchy here. Not because they are weak, not because they are stupid, but simply because there's a reason why this, this hierarchy is stable. If somebody bucks, they can be killed. Um, and I think more importantly and more often in a situation like this, the, the thing that happens isn't so much like immediate execution. That's not the big danger. The big thing that keeps people in line is just that they will slowly fade, that they will not be able to participate in society. They won't be able to buy and sell. They won't be able to participate here. And uh, uh, so they won't be able to feed themselves. They will starve to death. They will get sick and not be able to get access to health care. This is the thing that I, I see messed up too often. I see I see too many series that say like, oh yeah, from the get-go, we're like, we're the one folks who haven't accepted this. And I don't think that's a reality of these things. I don't think that is a reality to to uh dystopia. I don't I don't think it is real to look at all of these people and say, like, yeah, you know, they're all just like they're all just like waiting for the right moment to jump up there and and you know, throw down the powers that be. I think it's very, very important to depict these stories. I've always said it. In order to tell stories about overcoming evil, evil must be depicted. And I think in order to tell stories about overcoming um, the evil of tyranny, 
it's important to recognize where people are coming from and the true struggle. It's not it it does a disservice to the people who really are able to overcome the psychological and physical difficulties of tyranny and not just people who are like waiting for the right moment to, to sort of get lucky because then it's about luck and not about overcoming the actual challenges of it. There we go. That's what I've got to say about that. I'm, I'm very excited with the way that Suzanne Collins has approached some of these ideas um, and uh, approached them in a realistic manner, not just a, a manner of like, oh, yeah, I'm setting up this sort of puppet just so that we can beat up on it. Because then, you know, the puppet was never very threatening to begin with. Spider Author says, I'm wondering, too, if PETA is sincerely kind as Katniss is skeptical and mistrustful of others. It would be hard for her to think that he was truly a kind person. Van Saves Lives says, uh, PETA definitely seems to have a plan. He's way smarter than I think Katniss gave him credit for. She has a past view of him in her head, too ingrained. So Spider Author and Van Saves Lives sort of on two opposite ends. One from one side, Van is sort of thinking like, I think, I think, you know, Katniss, this is the one soft spot she even has for somebody who's not sort of related to her or helping her to put food on the table. The one soft spot she kind of has. Um, and Van is sort of thinking like, maybe, maybe Katniss has sort of left a blind spot for PETA. Whereas Spider Author comes at it from entirely the other angle saying, Katniss has a really, really hard time trusting people. Maybe he really is just a kind person and this is Katniss's natural mistrust of people that is sort of getting in her way. And I don't know about y'all and I don't know, I'm not going to make any, any sort of, I'm not going to blow anything about where this story is headed, but I, I just want to bring it back. Part of that natural mistrust for others, that is one of the effects of tyranny that has to be, uh, has to be portrayed here. If we're going to really take a look at the effects of tyranny and, and how it, how it, how it maintains its own power, we got to take a look at the ways in which it causes people to mistrust each other and to, to not be able to organize with one another. Um, that mistrust for other people, very, very valuable for the people who are in charge and want to keep that system running. Very valuable. The more that, and it's, it's what these games are designed to do. This is the reason these games exist. It's to take two people who should be able to be friends and say, now you have to kill each other. No trust. No trust. You can trust that we will be powerful and we will be we we the capital will will make your make life hell for you. But you can't trust one another. And so all you can do is trust the terror that we will bring and not the potential camaraderie you could have with someone close to you. Okay. All right. Uh, I see a lot of y'all getting into the discussion as well. I want you to keep doing that. Grower Plavia says, PETA is smarter than he's letting on, I believe. Uh, something's going on in his head, and I'm excited to see where it goes. Love the point of view of these books, too, because we know as soon as the characters do, or in this case, Katniss. Tenacia says, uh, I really don't like how Hamish acts toward them here. Uh, it's kind of like they have to prove they're worth saving and have some skills before he actually helps them. He should be helping them no matter what. Why do we think Hamish behaves like this? We're not going to cover it right now, but that is a great question. Why is Hamish this? Why is Hamish the way that he is? There we go. So, everyone, uh, a quick spot of review, less than 30 seconds uh, in our last chapter. They are on the train, uh, and it seems basically that they have gotten Hamish's attention. Um, Hamish, the, the uh, incomparable drunk, is... Uh, 
now he seems to be sort of impressed by uh, some of their some of their fire, some of their internal fire, and he has agreed. Uh, he is going to actually help them. He's going to sort of wake up as long as they don't interfere with his drinking. He is going to stay sober enough to be helpful. Um, and uh, we we see him sort of start to make good on this promise. He he has advised them just let the stylists do what they're going to do. It's important. Um, and uh, yeah, it seems like it seems like Hamish is kind of woken up here. The other thing happening in this chapter is that Katniss is having a hard time deciding whether or not to trust Peta, and she decides she can't. And with that, folks, I think it's about time we head on into our next chapter. Chapter 5. I grit my teeth as Venia, a woman with aqua hair and gold tattoos above her eyebrows, yanks a strip of fabric from my leg, tearing out the hair beneath it. Sorry, she pipes up in her silly capital accent. You're just so hairy. Why do these people speak in such a high pitch? Why do their jaws barely open when they talk? Why do the ends of their sentences go up as if they're asking a question? Odd vowels, clipped words, always a hiss on the letter S. No wonder it's impossible not to mimic them. Venia makes what's supposed to be a sympathetic face. Good news, though. This is the last one. Ready? I get a grip on the edges of the table I'm seated on and nod. The final swath of my leg hair is uprooted in a painful jerk. I've been in the remake center for more than three hours, and I still haven't met my stylist. Apparently he has no interest in seeing me until Venia and the other members of my prep team have addressed some obvious problems. This includes scrubbing down my body with a gritty loam that has removed not only dirt, but at least three layers of skin, turning my nails into uniform shapes, and primarily ridding my body of hair. My legs, arms, torso, underarms, parts of my eyebrows have been stripped of the stuff leaving me like a plucked bird ready for roasting. I don't like it. My skin feels sore and tingling and intensely vulnerable. But I've kept my side of the bargain with Hamish, and no objection has crossed my lips. You're doing very well, says some guy named Flavius. He gives his orange corkscrew locks a shake and applies a fresh coat of purple lipstick to his mouth. If there's one thing we can't stand, it's a wider. Grease her down. Venia and Octavia, a plump woman whose entire body has been dyed a pale shade of pea green, rubs me down with a lotion that first stings and soothes my raw skin. Then they pull me from the table, removing the thin robe I've been allowed to wear off and on. I stand there, completely naked as the three circle me, wielding tweezers to remove any last bits of hair. I know I should be embarrassed, but they're so unlike people, I'm not self-conscious. 
no more so than if I were surrounded by a trio of oddly covered birds pecking at my feet. The three step back and admire their work. Excellent. You look almost human now, says Flavius, and they all laugh. I force my lips into a smile to show how grateful I am. Thank you, I say sweetly. We don't have much cause to look nice in District 12. This wins them over completely. Of course you don't, you poor darling, says Octavia, clasping her hands together in distress for me. But don't worry, says Venia. By the time sinners through with you, you're going to look absolutely gorgeous. We promise, you know, now that we've gotten rid of all the hair and the filth, you're not horrible at all, says Flavius, encouragingly. Let's call Sinner. They dart out of the room. It's hard to hate my prep team. They're such total idiots, and yet, in an odd way, I know they're sincerely trying to help me. I look at the cold white walls and floor and resist the impulse to retrieve my robe. But this Cinna, my stylist, will surely make me remove it at once. Instead, my hands go to my hairdo. The one area of my body my prep team had been told to leave alone. My fingers stroke the silky braids my mother so carefully arranged. My mother. I left her blue dress and shoes on the floor of my train car, never thinking about retrieving them, of trying to hold on to a piece of her of home. Now I wish I had. The door opens and a young man who must be Cinna enters. I'm taken aback by how normal he looks. Most of the stylists they interview on television are so dyed and stenciled and surgically altered they're grotesque. But Cinna's close-cropped hair appears to be its natural shade of brown. He's in a simple black shirt and pants. The only concession to self-alteration seems to be metallic gold eyeliner. It's been applied with a light hand. It brings out the flecks of gold in his green eyes. And despite my disgust with the capital and their hideous fashions, I can't help thinking how attractive it looks. Hello, Cadmus. I'm Cinna, your stylist he says in a quiet voice, somewhat lacking the capital's affectations. Hello? I venture cautiously. Just give me a moment, all right? He asks. He walks around my naked body, not touching me, but taking in every inch of it with his eyes. I resist the impulse to cross my arms over my chest. Who did your hair? My mother. I say. It's beautiful. Classic, really. And an almost perfect balance with your profile. She has very clever fingers, he says. I had expected someone flamboyant. Someone older, trying desperately to look young. Someone who viewed me as a piece of meat to be prepared for a platter. Cinna has met none of my expectations. You're new, aren't you? I don't think I've seen you before, I say. Most of the stylists are familiar. Contestants in the ever-changing pools of tributes. Some have been around my whole life. 
Yes. This is my first year on the games, says Sinner. So they gave you District 12? Newcomers generally end up with us, the least desirable district. I asked for District 12, he says without further explanation. Why don't you put on your robe and we'll have a chat? Pulling on my robe, I follow him through a door into the sitting room. The two red couches face off over a low table. Three walls are blank. The fourth is entirely glass, providing a window to the city. I could see by the light it must be around noon, although the sunny sky has turned overcast. Sinna invites me to sit on one of the couches and takes his place across from me. He presses a button on the side of the table. The top splits, and from below rises a second tabletop that holds our lunch. Chicken and chunks of oranges cooked in a creamy sauce laid on a bed of pearly white grain. Tiny green peas and onions, rolls shaped like flowers, and for dessert, a pudding the color of honey. I try to imagine assembling this meal myself back at home. Chickens are too expensive, but I can make do with a wild turkey. I would need to shoot a second turkey to trade for an orange. Goat's milk would have had to be substituted for cream. We can grow peas in the garden. I'd have to get wild onions from the woods. I don't recognize the grain. Our own tessera ration cooks down into an unattractive brown mush. Fancy rolls would mean another trade with the baker, perhaps two or three squirrels. As for the pudding, I can't even guess what's in it. Days of hunting and gathering for this one meal. And even then it would be a poor substitution for the capital version. What must it be like, I wonder, to live in a world where food appears at the press of a button? How would I spend the hours I now commit to combing the woods for sustenance if it were so easily come by? What do they do? All day, these people in the capital, besides decorating their bodies and waiting around for a new shipment of tributes to roll in and die for their entertainment. I look up and find Sinna's eyes trained on me. How despicable we must seem to you, he says. Has he seen this in my face or somehow read my thoughts? He's right, though. The whole rotten lot of them is despicable. No matter, says Sinna. So, Katniss, about your costume for the opening ceremonies. My partner, Portia, is the stylist for your fellow tribute, Peter. And our current thought is to dress you in complimentary costumes. As you know, it's customary to reflect the flavor of the district. For the opening ceremonies, you're supposed to wear something that suggests your district's principal industry. District 11, agriculture. District 4, fishing. District 3, factories. This means that coming from District 12, Peter and I will be in some kind of coal miner's get-up. Since the baggy miner's jumpsuits are not particularly becoming, our tributes usually end up in skimpy outfits with hats with headlamps. One year, our tributes were stark naked and covered in black powder to represent coal dust. It's always dreadful, and does nothing to win the favor with the crowd. I prepare myself for the worst. So I'm going to be in a coal miner's outfit, I ask, hoping it won't be indecent. Mm, not exactly. You see, 
Fortune and I think that coal miner things very overdone. No one will remember you in that, and we both see it as our job to make sure District 12 tributes are unforgettable, says Cinna. I'll be naked for sure, I think. So rather than focus on the coal mining itself, we're going to focus on the coal, says Cinna. Naked and covered in black dust, I think. What do we do with coal? We burn it, says Cinna. You're not afraid of fire, are you, Katniss? He sees my expression and grins. A few hours later, I am dressed in what will either be the most sensational or the deadliest costume in the opening ceremonies. I'm in a simple black unitard that covers me from ankle to neck. Shiny leather boots lace up to my knees. But it's the fluttering cape made of streams of orange, yellow, and red, and the matching headpiece that define this costume. Cinna plans to light them on fire just before our chariot rolls into the streets. It's not real flame, of course, just a little synthetic fire Portia and I came up with. You'll be perfectly safe, he says. But I'm not convinced I won't be perfectly barbecued by the time we reach the city's center. My face is relatively clear of makeup, just a bit of highlighting here and there. My hair has been brushed out and then braided down my back in the usual style. I want the audience to recognize you when you're in the arena, says Cinna dreamily. Cadmus, the girl who was on fire. It crosses my mind that Cinna's calm and normal demeanor masks a complete madman. Despite this morning's revelations about Peter's character, I'm actually relieved when he shows up dressed in an identical costume. He should know about fire, being a baker's son and all. His stylist, Portia, and her team accompany him in, and everyone is absolutely giddy with excitement over what a splash we'll make. Except Cinna. He just seems a bit weary as he accepts congratulations. We're whisked down to the bottom level of the remake center, which is essentially a gigantic stable. The opening ceremonies are about to start. Pairs of tributes are being loaded into chariots pulled by teams of four horses. Ours are coal black. The animals are so well trained, no one even needs to guide in their reins. Cinna and Portia direct us to the chariot and carefully arrange our body positions, the drape of our capes, before moving off to consult with each other. What do you think? I whisper to Peter. About the fire? I'll rip off your cape if you'll rip off mine, he says through gritted teeth. Deal, I say. Maybe if we can get them off soon enough, we'll avoid the worst burns. It's bad, though. They'll throw us into the arena no matter what condition we're in. I know we promised Haymitch we'll do exactly what they said, but I don't think he covered this angle. The way it is, Haymitch, anyway. Isn't he supposed to protect us from this sort of thing? Asks Peter. With all the alcohol in him, it's probably not advisable to have him around in open flame. And suddenly, we're both laughing. I guess we're both so nervous about the games and, more pressingly, petrified of being turned into human torches, we're not acting sensibly. The opening music begins.
It's easy to hear, blasted around the capital. Massive doors slide open, revealing the crowd-lined streets. The ride lasts about 20 minutes and ends up at the city circle, where they welcome us, play the anthem, and escort us into the training center, where our home and prison will be until the games begin. The tributes from District 1 ride out in a chariot pulled by snow-white horses. They look so beautiful, spray-painted silver and tasteful tunics glittering with jewels. District 1 makes luxury items for the capital. You can hear the roar of the crowd. They're always favorites. District 2 gets into position to follow them. In no time at all, we are approaching the door, and I can see that between the overcast sky and evening hour, the light is turning gray. The tributes from District 11 are just rolling out when Sinna appears with a lighted torch. Here we go, then, he says, and before we can react, he sets our capes on fire. I gasp, waiting for the heat, but there's only a faint tickling sensation. Cinna climbs up before us and ignites our headdresses. He lets out a sigh of relief. It works. And he gently tucks a hand under my chin. Remember, heads high, smiles. They're going to love you. Sin jumps off the chariot and has one last idea. He shouts something up at us, but the music drowns him out. He shouts again and gestures. What's he saying? I ask Peter. For the first time, I look at him and realize that ablaze with the fake flames, he's dazzling. And I must be too. I think he said for us to hold hands, says Peter. He grabs my right hand in his left we look at Cinna for confirmation. He nods and gives a thumbs up. And that's the last thing I see before we enter the city. The crowd's initial alarm at our appearance quickly changes to cheers and shouts of District 12! District 12! Every head is turned our way, pulling the focus from the three chariots ahead of us. At first, I'm frozen. But then I catch sight of us on a large television screen, and I am floored by how breathtaking we look. In the deepening twilight, the firelight illuminates our faces. We seem to be leaving a trail of fire flowing from the capes. Senna was right about the minimal makeup. We both look more attractive, but utterly recognizable. Remember, heads high, smiles. They're going to love you. I hear Senna's voice in my head. I lift my chin a bit higher, put on my most winning smile, and wave with my free hand. I'm glad now I've got Peter to clutch for balance. He's so steady, solid as a rock. As I gain confidence, I actually blow a few kisses to the crowd. The people of the capital are going nuts, showering us with flowers, shouting our names, our first names, which they've bothered to find on the program. The pounding music, the cheers, the admiration work their way into my blood, and I can't suppress my excitement. Cinna has given me a real advantage. No one will forget me. Not my look, not my name. Katniss. The girl who was on fire. For the first time, I feel a flicker of hope rising up in me. Surely there must be one sponsor willing to take me on, and with a little extra help, some food, the right weapon. Why should I count myself out of the games? Someone throws me a red rose. 
I catch it, give it a delicate sniff and blow a kiss back in the general direction of the giver. A hundred hands reach up to catch my kiss, as if it were a real and tangible thing. Katniss! Katniss! I can hear my name being called from all sides. Everyone wants my kisses. It's not until we enter the city circle that I realize I must have completely stopped the circulation in Peta's hands. That's how tightly I've been holding it. I look down at our linked fingers as I loosen my grasp, but he regains his grip on me. No, no, don't let go of me, he says. The firelight flickers off of his blue eyes. Please, might fall out of this thing. Okay, I say. So I keep holding on, but I can't help feeling strange about the way Sinna has linked us together. It's not really fair to present us as a team and then lock us into the arena to kill each other. The twelve chariots fill the loop of City Circle. On the buildings that surround the circle, every window is packed with the most prestigious citizens of the capital. Our horses pull our chariot right up to President Snow's mansion, and we come to a halt. The music ends with a flourish. The President, a small, thin man with paper-white hair, gives the official welcome from a balcony above us. It is traditional to cut away to the faces of the tributes during the speech, but I can see on the screen we are getting way more than our share of airtime. The darker it becomes, the more difficult it is to take your eyes off of our flickering. When the national anthem plays, they do make an effort to do a quick cut around to each pair of tributes, but the camera holds on the District 12 chariot as it parades around the circle one final time and disappears into the training center. The doors are only just shut behind us when we're engulfed by the prep teams, who are nearly unintelligible as they babble out their praise. As I glance around, I notice a lot of the other tributes are shooting us dirty looks, which confirms what I've suspected. We've literally outshone them all. Then Cinna and Portia are there, helping us down from the chariot, carefully removing our flaming capes and headdresses. Portia extinguishes them with some kind of spray from a canister. I realize I'm still glued to Peta and force my stiff fingers to open. We both massage our hands. Thanks for keeping the hold of me. I was getting a little shaky there, says Peta. It didn't show, I tell him. I'm sure no one noticed. I'm sure they didn't notice anything but you. You should wear flames more often. They suit you. And then he gives me a smile that seems so genuinely sweet, with just the right touch of shyness, that unexpected warmth rushes through me. A warning bell goes off in my head. Don't be so stupid. Peta is planning how to kill you, I remind myself. He's luring you in to make you easy prey. The more likable he is, the more deadly he is. But because two can play this game, I stand on tiptoe and kiss his cheek. Right on his bruise.
Good Courage says, Sam, you've finally nailed background music levels. At long last, it's only taken the four years, Good Courage, but I do thank you so very much for it. Yeah, two down already, Van Saves Lives. Indeed. Hey, I want to I wanna go back and address some of these other things that y'all have been talking about from the description. The, uh, discussion before uh this is our second of three chapters for the evening i'm going to take a quick break about five minutes long i want to revisit some of this discussion we've talked about before a lot about um you know what's going on in pita's mind right now i think that's still super relevant so i think we're just going to continue that conversation through my chatter break uh through my through my break i'm going to take five minutes the timer will be up on screen you'll be able to see exactly when i'm back Take that moment, go, you know, use the restroom. Not that I'm not accompanying some of you to the restroom. I understand the realities of doing things on the internet. I know people are watching on their phones. I know what you do. It's okay. I've, I've accepted it. I've accepted my place <laughs> in your restroom. <laughs> um, but... Let's continue talking about PETA a little bit before I go to my break. Kuror Plavia says, PETA's smarter than he's uh, letting on, I believe. Something is going on in his head, and I'm excited to see where it goes. Love the point of view of these books, because we know as soon as these characters do, or in this case, Katniss. So I read this one, but I, I wanted to sort of re refocus on that sense of knowing what the characters know, knowing specifically what Katniss knows. Keep an eye on this. It is part of the sort of lonely feeling, but also think about what an effective way this point of view is for communicating what the author is trying to communicate, right? Talking about talking about the um, uh, the enforcing the sense of disunity, right? Enforcing the sense of mis, mis, sense of mistrust between people. What better way to express a person's distrust than the things that they are feeling themselves in the moment, right? It it just it makes so much sense for us to be inside Katniss's head for this, for this to be an I statement rather than a Katniss thought. Uh, it's I thought rather than you know Katniss planned for this. Uh, it's I planned for this rather than. I look rather than Katniss looked at Peter's eyes and 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 his smile and doesn't trust him. It's I look at Peter and I remember he's trying to kill me. Think of how effective that is. Such a great way to bring us in and help us to feel that same sense. Um, you know, we, we we've had some great stories told in many different ways, but for the things that this author is trying to accomplish, think of how effective this method is. Uh, let's see, uh, BLM Curtis Gibson, I think I'm seeing, welcome, great to have you here, uh, it is uh, fantastic to have new folks joining in, I see Basti and, uh, add as well, um, y'all, welcome to, <laughs> welcome to the Punk Ruffians, good to have you here, uh, and of course, Sparkle Love Good, 16 months subscribed, JCA, 17 months subscribed, y'all are fantastic, y'all are fantastic, um, I want to I want to bring it back and I want y'all to my, my sort of chatter break question is just a continuation here. Which side do you think it, it's a little bit more binary? Which side do you think PETA falls on and why? We had Spider Author and we had Van weigh in with two almost opposite opinions, and I love both of them because both of you have a great potential to be right here. Um which one do we think it is? Do we think that that PETA really is trying to build bridges here and Katniss is just mistrusting because of you know, the life that she has had to live? Or has she just had a soft spot that hasn't let her see that Peter has been plotting to kill her the whole time? And this is just trying to get on her good side to make that easier. 
Gibson, uh, what happened is a great question. When I come back from my break, I will do a full review of uh, what we've what we've seen from this book so far, so we can get you caught up. But everyone, if you want to know more about this channel and what we do here, go ahead and use the links command. I don't know if it's working. If it's not, go ahead and uh, head over to the Discord. Um, let's see, Linktree slash Sidecar Stories. L i n k t r dot ee slash sidecar stories that is where you can find out so so much more about this channel um including what we do throughout the week and the playlists channel over in discord as well um uh discord is the spot to be so if you want to find back episodes of this you can listen to the full thing back episodes of percy jackson and the olympians or harry potter we read through both of those series in their entirety um and i hope you'll go find them Hey, folks, I love you. I'll be back in five minutes. The timer will be on screen. I'll see you in five. Bye-bye. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. Let's talk about the Chatterbreak question. Um, some good, good takes here. Um, <laughs> Jem says, oh, Katniss, please be real. Please know some people are real. Indeed. Indeed, there, there is, you know, there is a, a sense that, like, the, the world has conspired to make it really hard for Katniss to trust people. And yet, um, uh, you know, the, some, some people are trustworthy. Is PETA one of them? Guru Plavius thinks not. I think PETA might be planning something sinister. He's already thought steps ahead, it seems. We do know that PETA is not, like, uh, a little sort of, like... Um, he, he's not someone who sort of sticks in the moment and just sort of lets the lets the tides carry where they may. He's certainly someone who has a plan, right? He he knows when he looks out of the train and sees people, he's going to wave to them. Maybe one of them is rich. Maybe one of them will will help him to uh, you know survive these games. He knows when when uh, when when to <laughs> when to smile, when to wave. He's got plans. He's someone who has. Uh, an awareness of what needs to be done, even if it's not the comfortable thing. Good Courage says, I think one of the things about PETA is he does seem to have grown up more insulated from the traumas of life in District 12, and he hasn't developed some of those same survival responses that she has. I think he might actually enjoy going into the games with some naivete. Oh, excuse me. I think he might actually be going into the games with some naivete. Like maybe hoping just to get through the games and not having to hurt anyone because he doesn't have that Machiavellian system Katniss is trying to impose on herself. Yeah, that that uh, sort of zero sum game where someone has to win and someone has to lose. There's no there's no mutual winning. Um, this is this is a system that Katniss it seems has fully internalized. Um, Assad says they're both coming from a poorer district where it's expected that they won't have the sponsors and training required to win. So the glory and potential for improving their homes may not be the first behavior deciding factor. They probably are looking for ways to survive, regardless of the morality, since they were probably living in a dog-eat-dog world. Yes, that zero-sum idea, that sense that it's not that we can win, there is there will be a winner, and then the rest will be losers. Losers, of course, being dead. Um but yeah, there's this, this is what's making it so difficult for Katniss. She's looking at PETA and wondering, are you someone who understands how life can be, how I've experienced it, or do you still, is there still something genuinely sweet about you? And I think there's, you know, um, we don't know it yet. We, we haven't talked much about it yet, but we can see a little bit from Cinna, um, I would say. It's probably our best source of it. And some from Effie Trinket as well. 
there is there are survival techniques that work in very socially hostile environments as well as physically hostile environments, right? Katniss has learned to fight, to hunt, to shoot. But someone like Effie or Cinna, they still exist in a world. They still exist in a system that requires them to participate so that they can stay alive. The currency of that system is not physical like it is in District 12. It's more of a social currency, but it exists nonetheless. And so there are survival techniques um, that someone like Cinna and Effie Trinket have had to develop that we can see have been really hard for, for Hamish to sort of come from the physical survival side to the uh, social survival side. That transition, it seems, has been pretty much hellish for him. Where does PETA fall in that? Has he had, has he been able to develop these social survival techniques that tell him, no, I must wave, I must smile and wave? Or is it just, is he just kind of a, a sweethearted guy who says, I kind of want to smile and wave? For most people, that wouldn't be an important distinction to make. But for Katniss, it is the prime question right now. Van says, his mom probably did accidentally train him in social things the same way Katniss accidentally got trained in survival. Yeah, and we actually know that uh, Assad says, could it not be both? It absolutely could be both. Absolutely, Assad. Um, um, and I think that's kind of the question that Katniss is asking. Like, what balance is there? Um, uh, that's a good specification because it's not so much Katniss is asking, is it one or the other? But like, what is? what are your stats essentially, right? Like, she's trying to get a, a glimpse of his character sheet. Like, what are your stats? Do you have really high charisma or just... Do you have really high wisdom? What am I seeing from you right now that's making you behave the way that you're behaving? Um, it's a really interesting bit of insight. And and Van Saves Lives brings up the issue of the parents, right? Um, we know that Katniss's mother was actually from a, a sort of higher tier of society, at least in District 12. And so some of those, she might have had kind of a, a bit of a hybrid of these physical survival skills and social survival skills. We know there are people who have sort of a hybrid of both. But yeah, Um yeah, where is where is Peta coming from? Katniss knows she's going to go in there and she's going to have to fight to kill against every other tribute there. So that's not a question. It's a stress, but it's not a question. And maybe some of y'all have experienced this, but sometimes the questions can be the most stressful thing. The things you don't know the answer to yet, but you need an answer. Folks, that's where we're at. Let's do a quick bit of review. The Hunger Games, Katniss Everdeen. She has been selected by a by a, uh, uh, a volunteer process so that her sister wouldn't have to go. But she comes from this little mining district, uh, District 12. It seems the least favorite um, for, for uh, victorious districts in the games altogether. Seems like this district doesn't often get many sponsors. But she and PETA have been able to get a little bit of attention from uh, the previous winner and their mentor quotes um Hamish Abernathy Hamish has promised to stay sober enough if they won't interrupt his drinking that he is going to be able to be helpful to them it seems like he's recognized he might actually have some fighters on his hands this year and so he sort of gives his first big piece of genuinely useful advice let the stylists do what they need to do and the stylists um include someone that that uh, uh Katniss was not expecting his name is Cinna, and she he's just not the sort of person she was expecting. She was expecting someone uh, very, very froofy, very, very, um, you know, like body modded out. Someone who is clearly conformed to the strange sense of fashion that exists in the capital. But he's not. He, he, uh, uh, um, uh, 
purports himself very no that's not quite the right word what do i say uh, presents himself uh pretty plainly a little bit of gold eye makeup that's about it and he is the one who has kind of flipped katniss's perception of what her fate is about to be until this moment until this sort of uh parade of tributes that are rolling into the capital the first time that they're really being shown off to the people of the capital until this moment katniss has been thinking just how long is it until i die how many will i have to kill before i am dead nowhere in katniss's mind does it seem that she is entertaining the possibility of actually winning this thing District 12 doesn't have the training and doesn't have the sponsors to make it happen. And yet, Cinna rolls in. He's quiet. He's methodical and maybe a bit of a madman, it seems. He puts her and Peta in capes that they then light on fire. And these flaming tributes roll down in their chariot hand in hand. The fire... And having them hold hands. These are two odd touches that Cinna brings to the mix here. And by the end of this little parade, District 12 has gotten so much more attention than they ever have in the past. They're getting, they're getting more attention than the other district tributes. Katniss thinks, maybe. Maybe I've made enough of an impression. Maybe I can get a little bit of food out of this. Maybe I can get a weapon out of this from a sponsor somewhere. Maybe I could win this. Maybe. It's a dangerous thought to have in the back of her head, and that is what she carries with her as we move into our final chapter for the evening. Chapter 6. Chapter 6. The training center has a tower designed exclusively for the tributes and their teams. This will be our home until the actual games begin. Each district has an entire floor. You simply step into an elevator and press the number of your district. Easy enough to remember. I've ridden the elevator a couple of times in the Justice Building back in District 12. Once to receive the medal for my father's death, and then yesterday to say my final goodbyes to my friends and family. But that's a dark and creaky thing that moves like a snail and smells of sour milk. The walls of this elevator are made of crystal so you can watch the people on the ground floor shrink to ants as you shoot up into the air. It's exhilarating, and I'm tempted to ask Effie Trinket if we can ride it again, but somehow that seems childish. Apparently, Effie Trinket's duties did not conclude at the station, She and Hamish will be overseeing us right into the arena. In a way, that's a plus, because at least she can be counted on to corral us around to places on time, whereas we haven't seen Hamish once since he agreed to help us on the train. Probably passed out somewhere. Effie Trinket, on the other hand, seems to be flying high. We're the first team she's ever chaperoned that made a splash at the opening ceremonies. She's complimentary about not just our costumes, but how we conducted ourselves. 
And to hear her tell it, Effie knows everyone who's anyone in the capital has been talking us up all day, trying to win us sponsors. I've been very mysterious, though, she says, her eyes squinting half shut. Because, of course, Hamish hasn't bothered to tell me about your strategies, but I've done my best with what I've got to work with. How Katniss sacrificed herself for her sister, how you've both successfully struggled to overcome the barbarism of your district. Barbarism? That's ironic, coming from a woman helping to prepare us for slaughter. And what's she basing our success on? Our table manners? Everyone has their reservations, naturally, you being from the coal district. But as I said, this was a very clever of me. I said, well, if you put enough pressure on coal, it turns into pearls. Effie beams at us so brilliantly we've got no choice but to respond enthusiastically to her cleverness, even though it's wrong. Coal doesn't turn into pearls. They grow in shellfish. Possibly she meant coal turns to diamonds, but that's untrue, too. I've heard they've got some sort of machine in District 1 that can turn graphite into diamonds. But we don't mine graphite in District 12. That was part of District 13's job until they were destroyed. I wonder if the people she's been plugging us to all day know or care. Unfortunately, I can't seal the sponsor deals for you. Only Hamish can do that, says Effie grimly. But don't worry, I'll get him to the table at gunpoint if necessary. Although lacking in many departments, Effie Trinket has a certain determination I have to admire. My quarters are larger than my entire house back home. They're plush, like the train car, but also have so many automatic gadgets, I'm sure I won't have time to press all the buttons. The shower alone has a panel with more than a hundred options you can choose, regulating water temperature, pressure, soaps, shampoos, scents, oils, massaging sponges. Then you step out onto a mat, and heaters come out that blow-dry your body. Instead of struggling with the knots in my wet hair, I merely place my hand on a box that sends a current through my scalp untangling, parting, and drying my hair almost instantly. It floats down around my shoulders in a glossy curtain. I program the closet for an outfit to my taste. The windows zoom in and out on parts of the city at my command. You need only whisper a type of food from a gigantic menu into a mouthpiece, and it appears, hot and steaming, before you in less than a minute. I walk around the room eating goose liver and puffy bread until there's a knock on the door. Effie's calling me to dinner. Good. I'm starving. Peter, Sinna, and Portia are all standing on a balcony that overlooks the Capitol when we enter the dining room. I'm glad to see the stylists, particularly after I hear that Hamish will be joining us. A meal presided over by just Effie and Hamish is bound to be a disaster. Besides, dinner isn't really about food. It's about planning out our strategies, and Cinna and Portia have already proven how valuable they are. A silent young man dressed in white tunic offers us all stemmed glasses of wine. I think about turning it down, but I've never had wine, except the homemade stuff my mother uses for coughs. And when will I get the chance to try it again? I take a sip of the tart, dry liquid and secretly think it would be improved by a few spoonfuls of honey. Hamish hey, shows up just as dinner is being served. He looked as though he's had a stylist of his own because he's clean and groomed and about as sober as I've ever seen him. He doesn't refuse the offer of wine, but when he starts in on his soup, I realize this is the first time I've ever seen him eat. 
Maybe he really will pull himself together long enough to help us. Cinna and Portia seem to have a civilizing effect on Haymitch and Effie. At least they're addressing each other decently. They both have nothing but praise for our stylist's opening act. While they make small talk, I concentrate on the meal. Mushroom soup, bitter greens with tomatoes the size of peas, rare roast beef sliced thin as paper, noodles in a green sauce, cheese that melts on your tongue served with sweet blue grapes. The servers, all young people dressed in white tunics like the one who gave us wine, move wordlessly to and from the table, keeping the platters and glasses full. About halfway through my glass of wine, my head starts feeling foggy, so I change to water instead. I don't like the feeling and hope it wears off soon. How Hamish can stand walking around like this full time is a mystery. I try to focus on the talk, which has turned to our interview costumes. When a girl sets a gorgeous-looking cake on the table and deftly lights it, it blazes up and the flames flicker around the edges a while and finally goes out. I have a moment of doubt. What makes it burn? Is it alcohol? I say, looking up at the girl. That's the last thing I... Oh. I know you. I can't place a name or a time to the girl's face, but I'm certain of it. The dark red hair, the striking features, the porcelain white skin. But even as I utter the words, I feel my insides contracting with anxiety and guilt at the sight of her. And while I can't pull it up, I know some bad memory is associated with her. The expression of terror that crosses her face only adds to my confusion and unease. She shakes her head in denial quickly and hurries away from the table. When I look back, the four adults are watching me like hawks. Don't be ridiculous, Katniss. How could you possibly know an Avox? snaps Effie. The very thought. What's an Avox? I ask stupidly. It is someone who's committed a crime. Cut her tongue out so she can't speak, says Hamish. She's probably a traitor of some sort. Not likely that you'd know her. And even if you did, you're not allowed to speak to them unless it's in order, says Effie. Of course, you don't really know her. But I do know her. And now that Hamish has mentioned the word traitor, I remember from where. The disapproval is so high I can never admit it. No, I guess not. I just... I stammer, and the wine is not helping. Peter snaps his fingers. Dilly Cartwright, that's who it is. I kept thinking she looked familiar as well. I realise she's a dead ringer for Delhi. Delly Cartwright is a pasty-faced, lumpy girl with yellowish hair who looks about as much like our server as a beetle looks like a butterfly. She may also be the friendliest person on the planet. She smiles constantly at everyone in school, even me. I've never seen the girl with the red hair smile. But I jump on Peter's suggestion gratefully. Of course, that's who I was thinking of. It must be the hair, I say. There's something about the eyes, too, says Peter. The energy at the table relaxes. Oh, well, if that's all it is, says Sinna. And yes, the cake has spirits, but all the alcohol is burned off. I ordered it specifically in honor of your fiery debut. We eat the cake and move into a sitting room to watch the replay of the opening ceremonies that being broadcast. A few of the other couples make a nice impression, but none of them can hold a candle to us. Even our own party lets out an ah 
as they show us coming out of the remake center. Whose idea was the hand-holding? asks Hamish. Sinners, says Portia. Shows the perfect torture rebellion, says Hamish. Very nice. Rebellion. I have to think about that one a moment. But when I remember the other couples standing stiffly apart, never touching or acknowledging each other as if their fellow tribute did not exist, as if the games had already begun, I know what Hamish means. Presenting ourselves not as adversaries, but as friends, has distinguished us as much as the fiery costumes. Tomorrow morning is the first training session. Meet me for breakfast, I'll tell you exactly how I want you to play it, says Hamish to Peter and I. Now, go get some sleep while the grown-ups talk. Peter and I walk together down the corridor to our rooms. When we get to my door, he leans against the frame not blocking my entrance exactly, but insisting I pay attention to him. So, Daily Cartwright. Imagine finding her lookalike here. He's asking for an explanation, and I'm tempted to give him one. We both know he covered for me. So here I am, in his debt again. If I tell him the truth about the girl, somehow that might even things up. How can it hurt, really? Even if he repeated the story, it couldn't do me much harm. It's just something I witnessed. And he lied as much as I did about Delhi Cartwright. I realize I do want to talk to someone about the girl, someone who might be able to help me figure out her story. Gail would be my first choice, but it's unlikely I'll ever see Gail again. I try to think of telling Peta could give any possible advantage over me, but I don't see how. Maybe sharing a confidence will actually make him believe I see him as a friend. Besides, the idea of the girl with her maimed tongue frightens me. She's reminded me why I'm here. Not to model flashy costumes and eat delicacies, but to die a bloody death while the crowds urge on my killer. To tell or not to tell. My brain still feels slow from the wine. I stare down the empty corridor as if the decision lies there. Peter picks up on my hesitation. Have you been on the roof yet? I shake my head. His son showed me. You can practically see the whole city. The wind's a bit loud, though. I translate this into, no one will overhear us talking, in my head. You do have the sense that we might be under surveillance here. Can we just go up? Sure, come on, says Peter. I follow him to a flight of stairs that lead to the roof. There's a small dome-shaped room with a door on the outside. As we step into the cool, windy evening air, I catch my breath at the view. The capital twinkles like a vast field of fireflies. Electricity in District 12 comes and goes. Usually we only have a few hours a day. Often the evenings are spent in candlelight. The only time you can count on it is when they're airing the games or some important government messages on television that's mandatory to watch. But here there would be no shortage. Ever. Peter and I walk to a railing at the edge of the roof. I look straight down the side of the building to the street, which is buzzing with people. You can hear their cars, 
an occasional shout, a strange metallic tinkling. In District 12, we would all be thinking about bed right now. I asked Sinna why they let us up here. Weren't they worried if some of the tributes might decide to jump over the edge? Says Peter. What did he say? I ask. You can't, says Peter. He holds out his hand to the seemingly empty space. There's a sharp zip. Then he jerks it back. Uh, some kind of electric field that throws you back onto the roof. Always worried about our safety, I say. Even though Cinna has shown Peter the roof, I wonder if we're supposed to be up here now. So late and alone. I've never seen tributes in the training center roof before. But that doesn't mean we're not being taped. Do you think they're watching us right now? Maybe, he admits. Go and see the garden. On the other side of the dome, they've built a garden with flower beds and potted trees. From the branches hang hundreds of wind chimes, which account for the tinkling I heard. Here in the garden, on this windy night, it's enough to drown out two people who are trying not to be heard. Peter looks at me expectantly. I pretend to examine a blossom. We were hunting in the woods one day, heading, waiting for game, I whisper. You and your father, he whispers back. No, my friend Gail. Suddenly all the birds stopped singing at once. Except one. As if it were given a warning call. And then we saw her. I'm sure it was the same girl, the boy who was with her. Their clothes were tattered. They got dark circles under their eyes from no sleep. They were running as if their lives depended on it, I say. For a moment I'm silent, and I remember how the sight of this strange pair, clearly not from District 12, fleeing through the woods, immobilized us. Later we wondered if we could have helped them escape. Perhaps we might have concealed them if we moved quickly. Gail and I were taken by surprise, yes, but we're both hunters. We know how animals look at bay. We knew the pair was in trouble as soon as we saw them, but we only watched. The hovercraft appeared out of nowhere, I continued to Peter. I mean, one moment the sky was empty and the next it was right there. It didn't make a sound, but they saw it. A net dropped down on the girl and carried her up so fast, like the elevator. They shot some sort of spear through the boy. It was attached to a cable and they hauled him up as well. But I'm certain he was dead. We heard the girl scream once. It was the boy's name, I think. And then it was gone. The hovercraft. It vanished into thin air. The birds started to sing again, as if nothing had happened. Did they see you? Peter asked. I don't know, we were under a shelf of rock, I reply. But I do know. It was a moment after the bird call, but before the hovercraft, where the girl had seen us. She'd locked eyes with me and called out for help. But neither Gail nor I had responded. You're shivering, says Peter. The wind and the story have blown all the warmth out of my body. 
girl scream? Had it been her last? Peter takes off his jacket and wraps it around my shoulders. I start to take a step back, but then I let him, deciding for a moment to accept both his jacket and his kindness. A friend would do that, right? They were from here, he asks and secures the button at my neck. I nod. They'd had that capital look about them, the boy and the girl. Where do you suppose they were going? he asks. I don't know, I say. District 12 is pretty much the end of the line. Beyond us, there's only wilderness. If you don't count the ruins of District 13 that still smolder from the toxic bombs, they show it on television occasionally just to remind us. Or why they would leave here, Hamish had called the Ivox's traitors. Against what? They could only be the capital, but they had everything here, no cause to rebel. I'd leave here, Peter blurts out. Then he looks around nervously. It was loud enough to hear above the chimes. He laughs. I'd go home now if they let me. But you've got to admit the food's prime. He's covered again. If that's all you'd heard, it would just sound like the words of a scared tribute, not someone contemplating the unquestionable goodness of the capital. It's getting chilly. We better go in. Inside the dome, it's warm and bright. His tone is conversational. Your friend, Gail, he's the one who took your sister away at the reaping, yeah? Yes, do you know him? I ask. Not really. I hear the girls talk about him a lot. I thought he was your cousin or something. You'd favour each other, he says. No, we're not related, I say. Peter nods, unreadable. Does he come to say goodbye to you? Yes, I say, observing him carefully. So did your father. He brought me cookies. Peter raises his eyebrows as if this is news. But after watching him lie so smoothly, I don't like this much. Really? Well, he likes you and your sister. I think he wishes that he had a daughter instead of a house full of boys. The idea that I might ever have been discussed around the dinner table at the bakery fire just in passing in Peter's house gives me a start. It must have been when the mother was out of the room. He knows your mother from when they were kids, says Peter. Another surprise, but probably true. Well, yes, she grew up in town, I say. It seems impolite to say she never mentioned the baker except to compliment his bread. We are at the door. I give back his jacket. See you in the morning, then? See you, he says, and walks off down the hall. When I open my door, the red-headed girl is collecting my unitard and boots from where I left them on the floor before my shower. I want to apologize for possibly getting her in trouble earlier. But I remember I'm not supposed to speak to her unless I'm giving her an order. Oh, sorry, I say. I was supposed to get those back to Senna. I'm sorry. Can you take them to him? She avoids my eyes, gives a small nod, and heads out the door. 
I'd set out to tell her I was sorry about dinner. But I know my apology runs much deeper. That I'm ashamed I never tried to help her in the woods. That I let the capital kill the boy and mutilate her without lifting a finger. Just like I was watching the games. I kick off my shoes and climb under the covers in my clothes. The shivering hasn't stopped. Perhaps the girl doesn't even remember me. But I know she does. You don't forget the face of the person who was your last hope. I pull the covers up over my head as if this will protect me from the red-headed girl who can't speak, but I feel her eyes staring at me, piercing through the walls and doors and bedding. I wonder if she'll enjoy watching me die. Van Saves Live says, this went by too fast. Kuroplavia says, how messed up is this world? We're definitely getting a picture more and more, right? This is not just a, this is not something that's isolated, right? And this is something else that I think is important and well done in this series, which is to say that the, this thing that has allowed people to see other people as something less than people, this is pervasive, Right, this thing that this 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 moral um, uh, decay, and I, I want you all to please be careful when you hear those words because so often that is it is related to a uh, a sense that we should be following some some ancient code written someplace and not uh, a a a genuine observation of morals and how they relate to today. So be careful when you hear this, the term moral decay, but I mean this not in it, the sense that it is sort of like a uh, like a uh, snowball picked up all this nonsense connotation. I mean it only in the literal, its most literal definition, a decay of the morals of people here. This has this has been pervasive, right? We, we, if we came into this world and it was like, yeah, it's just the normal world. Everything's normal. Um, you know, people go to school. There's, you know, there, there are tensions between different groups. Uh, and then every year we have this one thing where, you know, every one, one person from every state in the U S goes and kills each other. It would, it wouldn't feel, it wouldn't feel sensible. It wouldn't feel cohesive. Right. Um, or at the very least, it wouldn't read in that way. I think it is very important to remember that it is this same thing, this same, the same ignorance of the value of other people. This this same like willful often uh, ignorance of the value that other people have. The the ignorance of of choosing not to see a human being as a human being. The, the same thing that, that, that is what allows the Hunger Games to continue, but it has other effects as well. It's not isolated just to this one thing. It, I think it's part of the reason why The Purge, that, that sort of series, um, is so silly at the beginning. I think they started to sort of work with it, and I will admit I have not seen it, but like it's the reason why that idea sort of rings as silly. Like, yeah, could, we're just going to like, there, there's some world that exists where 
we can sort of like, you know, people are murderous, but just for one day. I think they sort of start to lean into this, the, how how pervasive that attitude would have to be to actually exist in the world. But um, I think it's important. I think it's important to identify that the thing that happens in the human heart that allows something like the Hunger Games to happen, it doesn't just allow the Hunger Games to happen. It allows something like an AVOX to happen, where they have taken this person who tried to escape the capital. We still don't know why they would try to do this, and we're going to be... I mean, it's fascinating to try and understand why that would be, and I, I do hope we'll get more information about that. We will. Um, why would someone try to escape the capital? But, you know, this seeing the 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 punishment that is perpetrated on them, it's it comes from that same sickness of the heart. Um, that causes someone to, you know, participate in the Hunger Games or to support the Hunger Games. It is this, it is it is a, a willingness to look at other people and say that they are not people or that they are somehow less of a person or less of, or, or less deserving of the things that we consider important to humans. Um, uh, support, infrastructure, those sorts of things. It's amazing what people can do to people when they don't see them as people. Amazing. Um, uh, truly terrifying. So, remember that people are people. And I think that is where I would like to leave this discussion for the week. Um, I'm very excited to be into, into this series. Um, it, it, it talks about so many important things and, um, you know, things that I think are really pressing and relevant and, uh, you know, presented in this way that makes it enjoyable to read, but certainly, uh, not shying away from just absolutely vital discussions. Um, <laughs> Kuroplavia, I am glad you are enjoying it. I'm very glad to hear it. Um, Spider Author, I hope you have a fantastic night. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Gems says the author is such a good study of people and describing them. That's what makes these books so eerie, but so good. I do certainly think there's some of that. I, I, I think there must be some, something, uh, in the author's life that makes it, makes it, uh, easier for them. I, I could be wrong. Could just be raw talent, but there is a really strong, uh, and pressing sense of mistrust here. And I think to depict that, uh, I, I think the, the most often way that people come by a great sense of artistic expression is by experiencing it. And so I, I do wonder if this great deep sense of mistrust was something that the author experienced or just simply it is possible it's raw talent, but um, the different ways in which that sense of mistrust manifests, the different moments that it sort of wells up in your life and, and makes it hard for you to communicate or to participate in whatever's going on. I think uh, it is presented with a, a great sense of realism here and it's, it's pervasive. Once again, you know, the, the I, I'm using this word pervasive. I hope it's not going over by anybody's heads. But if you're kind of like new to reading uh, as a, a and trying to understand rather than just reading to read, um, uh, keep in mind when you see something that seems totally isolated and it doesn't really have a part anywhere else in the series or in the book, and and those moments when it's like I, I saw this once and then they never really brought it up again. Um, that can sometimes be an example of like uh, uh, some some writing that needed a little bit more polish. But 
check out these moments where you've got this idea that it just feels like it is so, uh, the, the good writing is manifesting as it feels like it belongs here. We can see the reasons why Katniss behaves that she does, the reasons why she has some of the thoughts that she does, because it's consistent. It's consistent and it's when I say pervasive, I mean it exists and it keeps popping up throughout uh, in all sorts of different places. Good Courage says, Sam, this has made me wonder, have you ever read A Handmaid's Tale? I have not. Uh, that the Handmaid's Tale sort of entered my sphere of awareness um, uh, at a time when I kind of decided I probably couldn't handle seeing something like that right now. Um, and that has continued. Of course, as I mentioned, uh, I'm going to be heading to the, uh, I'll be able to head to the psychiatrist, to the, uh, pharmacy soon. Um, and, uh, so maybe in the next few weeks that may change, but as of right now, still not in a place where I'm going to take a look. Still not there. Uh, Sparkle Lovegood says, as always, the books are better than the movies, but this particular series, so much of the story is psychological and within thoughts, it makes it difficult to portray on the screen. Yeah, that's really tough. Really, really difficult. Um, I'm glad they, I'm glad, you know, they gave it a shot because I do think that the movies were actually a pretty decent representation of this, but so much of this series is about the psychology of existing under tyranny and, um, uh, you know, it's hard to depict that on screen because I think like voiceover has kind of fallen out of favor these days and there aren't a lot of other great ways to express, um, the sort of the inner monologue of someone. It's tough, you know, the the film and, and uh, the visual medium of all this can really express a lot of things in a fantastic way. This is one where it seems like written text still kind of wins. All right, folks, I hope you've enjoyed today. Um, I hope that, uh, I hope you will join me again next week, of course. Uh, folks, this is Sidecar Stories. My name is Sam, and we do this on Thursdays. We also do, uh, you know, this whole channel dedicated to stories, telling them, sharing them, creating them. Um, on Wednesdays, we are auditioning games for our next campaign in the realms of Recetus. So... Uh, we have auditioned one called Iron Sworn. It's looking like a strong contender, but if you want to come hang out on Wednesdays and uh, check out some tabletop RPG action, um, I've got a few different formats that I'm, I'm considering, but uh, right now we are auditioning some games. But y'all keep an eye on that space because pretty soon we're going to be creating characters and uh, I plan for y'all to have to be able to participate and help to control uh, the character or characters that uh, we make for chat. Um, it's not going to be a full chat plays dungeon world like last time, but I, I definitely want, I want y'all to have a, a great and high fidelity control of one of these characters, uh, at least one, if not more. So, uh, that's going to be a lot of fun. Um, have a fantastic night. If this is the last bit you're joining us for, but folks, uh, if you want to find out more about flying sidecar, which is our Thursday stream, it's why you're here right now. Uh, you can find out more over on Discord. And then, of course, you know, the the, the brief of it is, if you want to find uh, the back episodes of this, go ahead and search Flying Sidecar wherever you get your podcasts. Um, but, of course, as always, everyone, uh, the link to follow, the link to share, linktree slash sidecar stories. L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash sidecar stories. Thank you very, very much. And thank you for joining me.